0: Well good morning. Happy Easter. I'll echo what's already been said. Absolutely. It's great to have you guys here. So Right from the get-go, let's clarify what we're doing here. We're not here fulfilling some holiday tradition. We are here celebrating in the tradition of the church, of the history of the church over 2,000 years. We're celebrating a couple of things. We're celebrating the reality of Christ's resurrection, but also the relevance. When I say the reality, what I'm referring to is we're not here celebrating, we're not here commemorating the memory of Jesus or celebrating the resurrection of his influence or his teaching, or uh, his, his good deeds or his memory. We're celebrating the literal, bodily, historical resurrection from the dead. And I want to make sure that we understand that. And so, we're, we're all at different places about where we stand. Really, that, that's what we're about, that, that, that really happened? But at the core, you know, C.S. Lewis was a, f- a famed apologist of the 20, uh, 20th century. He said, Jesus is either liar or lunatic or he's Lord. But he's not a good man. He doesn't leave that option open to us. So, either he was lying or he was absolutely loony or he was who he claimed to be. And it all hinges on the resurrection. Paul was a guy who persecuted Christians, hated them. Jesus appeared to him. He came to, to faith in Christ. He said this to, writing to a church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Later on in verse 17, he said, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And down, down in verse 29, 32, now if there is no resurrection, let's eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. This is not some ancillary thing that's optional. If Jesus rose from the dead, we're right where we need to be. If He didn't, you and I are wasting our time. There are people getting ahead of us at the restaurant. And we're wasting our, our time here. But if He did, then as we sang right at the very beginning, it changes everything. And tons of people have, have dabbled and said, I don't believe in the Christianity thing, so my challenge to you is engage with the resurrection. Dig into it. Plenty of books have been written. I've got a couple of friends who use the investigative uh, pursuit. One was a journalist, Lee Strobel. He, he said, I don't believe it. He was an atheist, a journalist up in Chicago, the Chicago Tribune, investigated the resurrection and came to Christ. So we're here celebrating the reality of the resurrection, but also the relevance of it. The resurrection validates all Jesus taught. If He didn't rise from the dead, I can't believe anything else He said, because He said He'd rise from the dead. If He couldn't rise from the dead, why should I believe everything else? I couldn't believe what He said He was going to accomplish. His death was just a martyr's death. So that resurrection validates, that's a, 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 the relevance of the resurrection is it validates who Jesus is and what Christianity is about. But it even goes deeper than just validating. It facilitates something in our lives and in our humanity. You and I are all created in God's image, every one of us. Not just religious people. We're all in His image. We're all capable of laughter and creativity and ingenuity. We're capable of wonderful things, of smiles. We're also capable of great evil. We're in His image, but we're broken image bearers. And the scriptures say we're dead as a result. Life and death is not just a matter of whether my heart's beating and lungs are breathing, but whether I'm alive to the original purpose God's made for me. So the relevance of the resurrection, first got to grapple with the reality. But the relevance, Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. He says, just as Christ is raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may have a new religion now, a new life. Colossians 1, Revelation 1 talks about Jesus being the firstborn from among the dead. His agenda coming was not to start a holiday, not to start a religion, not to give us something to do on Sunday morning, but to breathe back into a broken, rebellious cosmos and bring it back to life. And he's got a timetable of that that is beyond our comprehension, but clearly throughout Scripture, you see this unfolding. And he says in John 10 verse 10, I've come, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. He's not here to give you and me a new religion. He's here to give us new life, a way that it changes the way that we play golf, that we do our taxes, that we do our relationships, that we do our funerals. He's here to breathe life back into the cosmos. That's why our vision here at Northland is engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. It's one thing to be surviving, but the beauty of the gospel is it enables us to thrive. Not happy clappy, but to grapple with the reality of what's going on in a fallen world and to enter into that. There's so many un- unpacks of being fully alive. We've talked about them here at Northland. We invite you on this journey, but here's one our hearts get encouraged. Paul brings this up as he's, he's writing to the Corinthians in the second letter. He says, verse 14, 2 Corinthians 4, he says, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Because of the resurrection, I'm enabled to not lose heart. What's it look like to lose heart? You know, we have hearts as Valentine's, love, romance, that's not the kind of heart we're referring to. The heart is the core of who I am and it's who you are. Metaphorically speaking, our heart summarizes the essence of our humanity and who we are. Somebody who's engaging their heart, maybe an athlete, if they're playing with heart, they're playing very sharply attuned mentally to the game, game plan, so it involves your intellect. They're obviously executing well, their skill is involved. So. Uh, it, it's their ability, but they're also playing with passion. To live with heart is not just to live with emotion, it's to live with my, my, my mind tuned in where I'm thinking deeply, I'm feeling authentically, I'm acting intentionally, but over and over we encounter things that, that attack us on a heart level. The gospel's aimed at the heart. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says, above all else guard your heart because it's the wellspring of life. The Bible is, it says uh, over about, about um, 700 times, 783 times, talks about the heart. Only 596 does it talk about heaven. How's your heart doing? Heart's where we dance. It's where we dream. It's where we despair. And here Paul is saying the relevance of the resurrection is it enables me to not lose Heart. A number of years ago, I was in college, five, six years ago when I was in college. <laughs> I went there to play tennis, and I had an accident right before showing up for fall, fall practice. And I had cracked my sternum, so I couldn't work out, but I was still with the team in terms of uh, on the court, but I was trying to stay in good physical condition. So I was running. Well, the tennis coach and the co- cross-country coach were good friends. Cross-country team, their, their season was in the fall. They had a meet coming up and there was a stomach flu bug that went through the cross-country team, decimated them. And the coach didn't want to forfeit. So he asked his buddy, the tennis coach, hey, you got any guys on the tennis team could, that could run with us, could suit up? He said, yeah, talk to Herd. I had never seen a cross country meet, much less participated in one. But uh, they gave me a uniform, and I, I, was, I was pumped. So I get there to the stadium, and I don't know if you know how cross country meets go, but the variations on this theme: you run a couple of, t- you're in the stadium, you run a couple of times around the track in the stadium, you head out the gate, you run up to Oregon or somewhere, <laughs> and then you come back days later and into the stadium. They explained that to me a little bit. I didn't know what to do, how to do it. All I knew is I was in the pack and I was jazzed. I had so much adrenaline going through me, the gun sounded, I took off. Wasn't long before I looked over to my left and saw the rest of the pack behind me on the other side of the stadium. I was at least a half track, almost a full length ahead of them, and I kept going. And I'm thinking, what a wimpy sport this cross country is. I can't believe those guys are so far back, and all of you know what happened. I took out, I took off out the gate, and before long, I lost heart. Physically, I was impacted. Emotionally, is impacted. I started reasoning my way out of, it and thinking, "What am I doing?" I ended up next to last, barely alive. Now, I've, I've wondered. The reason I'm sharing, one of the reasons I'm sharing it with you is, what would have happened if social media existed? What would I have said? Would I have used some of these phrases, hey, best day ever, winning, live the dream, all my dreams come true. No, I don't know that I would have posted it because what we want to do is we want to put our best foot forward in social media. Think positive, be positive. These are all things I've seen in life on uh, social media. You have too. My life is perfect. Blah. Uh, blessed, perfection, living my best life. It's hard to look this good. Good vibes only. Just another day in paradise. Can't wait for the weekend. We go on and on. We've got an image that we, we portray on social media and it camouflages what's really going on. I have a playlist I, I, I'm multiple people in terms of my musical taste. You, it's hard to breathe. I like all sorts of music. I was listening to Brad Paisley's where he came up on my playlist. And he's got a song that came out several years ago called Online. You guys know that song? It's about this guy. Here's how the lyrics go. I work down at the Pizza Pit and I drive an old Hyundai. I still live with my mom and dad and I'm five foot three and overweight. I'm a sci-fi fanatic. I'm mild asthmatic. But there's a whole nother me that you need to see. And then he says, you go check me out on my social media page. He says, I I grow another foot and I lose a bunch of weight every time I log on. Because online, I'm out in Hollywood, I'm six foot five and I look good. I'm mysterious and I drive a Maserati, I'm, I'm black belt in karate. I'm so much cooler online. Some of our younger crowd, they'll say, that's catfishing right there, and it is. (laughs) I get home, I kiss my mom, and she fixes me a snack. I head down to my basement bedroom and fire up my Mac. In real life, the only time i ever been to LA was when I got the chance with the marching band to play tuba in the Rose Parade. But online, I live in Malibu. I pose for Calvin Klein. I've been in GQ. I'm single, and I'm rich, and I've got a set of six-pack abs that'll blow your mind. You know, we love those, hey, isn't it great on social media? How about these things? You ever see these on social media? Anxiety, hopelessness, failure, apathy, materialism, shame, exhaustion, being overwhelmed, feeling abandoned, insignificant, weak, depressed, insecure, having a low self-image, worthless, feeling that pressure from people to be somebody I'm not. When I see the contrast between what we often want to portray and project on social media and what often is actually the truth, think of a little book that my boys loved. It, It was written in 1922, it's been around a while, it's called The Velveteen Rabbit. It's about by Marjorie Williams, it's about all these toys in a nursery and there's two groups of toys. There's the mechanical toys and then the real authentic toys. The mechanical toys, uh, they're the people that do all those posts on social media about winning and isn't everything great. The mechanical toys were very superior and looked down upon everyone else. They were full of modern ideas and pretended they were real. And they post it away on social media. It's not in there, but they they A minute. So the velveteen rabbit talks to the skin horse, the old wise toy, and says, what, what is real? Asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender. And before Nana came to tidy the room, he asked, does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick out handle? The skin horse replied, real isn't how you're made. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. Well, does it happen all at once, like being wound up? You he ask her bit by bit. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges. have to be carefully kept. Generally by the time you're real most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you're real you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. Being real It goes right along with being fully alive. To be fully alive in Jesus is to embrace equally the reality and the relevance of the resurrection but the reality of our brokenness. It doesn't mean, hey, I got to pretend. There's some people that will say, I just want to engage with the fallenness, the brokenness without, without the resurrection. And you know what? Man, there's depression abounding, which is why we go for anesthetics and painkillers. And we head down paths of, of, of inauthenticity because we just can't face the reality. No, it's resurrection that gives context. But it's not looking at the context in a religious vacuum and not being real. It's both and. And when I do the both and, all of a sudden my heart starts to get engaged with the God Possible. And I start in facing up to those heartbreak moments in our lives. I've got some friends who uh, r- run marathons. They asked me to run. I said, no, I've already, I've already done one. I did cross-country <laughs> when I was in college. <laughs> and they ran a couple have run the Boston Marathon, one of the most famous marathons. Now, the Boston Marathon is famous for a number of reasons, but it's got several characteristics. But there's one. From mile 16 to mile 21 is a stretch that's a series of seven hills through a, a beautiful suburb. Uh, the last hill is a, is a hill. It's not a huge hill, but it's a significant hill. Anybody know the name of it? It's called Heartbreak Hill. And it's not so much the steepness of it. It's where it's located in the, the 26 miles. They've hit a wall about mile 19, and so they get to Heartbreak Hill, and mentally they start wondering, can I do this? Uh, they lo- start losing passion. The strength begins to subside. In fact, one of my friends says, the hard thing is right after Heartbreak Hill, you, you lose the crowds that have been cheering you on for 21, 22 miles, and you head into a cemetery, Evergreen Cemetery, where there's nobody cheering you on. Do I want to keep going? And you know what heartbreak is like. The longer you live in a fallen world, you, you know it. Everything's going, going great, and then it's not. It's a phone call. You never thought a son or daughter could say those kind of things to you. Never thought a spouse would have that posture. Never thought this would happen at work to my finances. I never thought I was capable of that type of addiction. I never thought people would actually plot to bomb churches or synagogues or mosques. So what do we do? hearts are broken and out of that broken-heartedness even if nobody else knows comes a sense of namelessness hopelessness powerlessness to be broken-hearted is to be nameless. Hey, does anybody know? Is to be powerless. I don't have enough resources. It's to be hopeless. Does the gospel have anything to say to that? Paul says yes. He says the resurrection is embedded right in the middle of that. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart, not your religious perspective, He says, guys, engage with your heart. Even if it's crumbling, engage and see this, that you may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, that power is the same as the mighty strength. Don't put your religious glasses on here. This is a real human being talking to other real human beings how to get through on a Monday morning. He says, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated at him his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He says, he'll restore your hearts. How does that happen? You look at this passage, you get some insights. There are many more ways. Let's look at three. Restoring our hearts addresses that namelessness and that hopelessness and that powerlessness. How? Restoring our hearts when we're nameless comes out with his significance. Let's move to that next slide. I want you to stare at that word significance. When I'm feeling nameless, I don't care how many titles I've got or friends I've got, there's a sense of I'm unknown. That passage talks about the fact that He calls us. Right now, thousands of people in here, you might feel insignificant or nameless. But if I were to, and I'm not going to, so don't ban it. but if I were to call you out by name and say some things to you, all of a sudden you wouldn't feel nameless. And the insignificance would subside, in the mass of humanity, that temptation to feel insignificant, it comes up, and we do all sorts of things to mass that, to address that, running over other people so that we can feel significant, making up for those wounds that we've experienced. A friend of mine was telling me just this week that she, uh, she won when she was a freshman, the Florida State Cross- Country Championship. I said, "Whatever, everybody can run cross-country." <laughs> just kidding. I said, "That's awesome. And we were talking about it and she said, I, yeah, I got home and told my mom and she said that wasn't your best time. We all have those wounds where people say you're not significant. And that passage not only addresses our namelessness that's heartbreaking but also the hopelessness by saying, hey, there's security. So restoring my heart involves me when I'm nameless to embrace the significance of the gospel. Secondly, it involves me when I'm hopeless to embrace the security of the gospel. Let's bring that up on the screen. He says, you've got an inheritance here. He talks about it, an inheritance that that sense of insecurity we've got says what's coming up. Jesus has has a A strategy of renewing the entire cosmos, but it involves us honestly engaging with the hopelessness that's right in front of us. I shared with you guys last week, if you were here, about a trip that I just took with my middle son, Stephen. I uh, cashed on some frequent flyer miles and headed down to Patagonia and met him. He's volunteering in an orphanage in Bolivia this year, his first year out of college. And we hiked around the region of Mount Finchroy, where the Patagonia clothing line comes from. Uh, had a blast, hiked over 60 miles, including it all started with that sign that I talked about last week. That sign that talks about, it's a warning sign. You are now entering a wilderness area in which your personal health is at the disposal of the natural forces. And that's true for all of us. I, so we unpacked that, but here's what I didn't tell you last week. Another motivation that I had in being there I went down with two canisters of ashes, a friend of ours, long-time friends. They have three boys. We have three boys. Their middle son completed medical school down in Argentina last summer, and he was spending the summer working with the hospital. where had done his training. He was about to come back up to the States for his internship. And he died in his sleep in the physician's quarters there. And so different friends are taking his ashes around the world. He was an adventurer. He was a hiker. And so Stephen and I both had some significant time engaging with the reality of his loss. And when we're doing that, we're doing that with the hope of the gospel and the hope of the resurrection. If Jesus isn't risen, we of all people are to be pitied, but if He is... This Bible I'm using is my mom's, my first Easter since she died on January the 2nd. What enables me to have hope? Some pie in the sky, do some little positive mental attitude. No, the resurrection. Sri Lanka and the violence today, what enables us to have hope in the midst of that? Is it positive mental attitude? That will not get you through that type of violence. It's the hope of the resurrection. And that third powerlessness. How do our hearts get restored? Not just by Him bringing significance through the resurrection and security, but bringing strength. Now, there's, there's it's put in a very powerful way, and. in verse 18 and 19, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted, so the word power and mighty and strength and exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Those four words are all aiming to do with enoughness. Take the next step, he'll be enough. Take the next step, he'll be enough. He will be enough because he's got an agenda and it's restoring all things including you. Notre Dame's tragedy this past week was painful. It reminded me, though, of the Sistine Chapel and damage that was done slowly and gradually, not all at once. Sistine Chapel in Rome, Michelangelo painted over uh, uh, the ceiling, absolutely beautiful back in the 16th century, but within 100 years, soot had covered the walls. But back in the 80s, they uncovered the color. They began a restoration. And people who thought that Michelangelo didn't know color, they saw, you see Daniel, here's the sit covered, and now we see the restoration. You see creation, here's sit covered, the restoration. The last judgment, sit colored, the restoration. God's up to something with this. He wants to do a masterpiece in you. He wants to restore you and me. And that passage that encouraged Stephen and me, it's on the side of the canisters of our friend's ashes. John Eldred spoke at the memorial service because his son was good friends with this young man. Acts 3.21, until the time comes for God to restore everything as He promised. You're saying even this? He says, even this, but what I've got to do is lay it down. I went through the parking lot this week. I prayed, every parking space, I prayed for your car. Some of you have got brake issues. (laughs) Just kidding. I prayed for the people in those cars and I prayed that you would have the courage to be real about what's going on in your heart, and to be real about the resurrection, to have the courage to lay it down.